You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. If you weren't here last week, we talked about source. Okay, and this is online. It's, it's helpful, by the way, if you can be here every week for this. And if you can't, it's, it's, it's pretty important that you at least go back during the week and listen to the audio from the previous one. Last week, we talked about source. And it's the foundational element of what it means to follow Jesus. What we're saying as people that follow Jesus is that there is a better source for life and the leadership of our lives than ourselves. And that though there are many sources offered to us, which is in the, which is in, it's even over here if you weren't here last week that you can take with you. Though there are many sources offered through life, there is only one that is worth following, which is Jesus. So Jesus is the best source of love, of truth, and of leadership. And that we would follow him, our life becomes meaningful and our life becomes what Jesus terms the abundant life. Um, there's something that, Dr. Greg Mitchell, who wrote the material, was here last week with us, and he said, the quality of our life is determined by the quality of its leadership. And this is why it's important, is we can hear this idea that we're called to follow Jesus as a kind of obligation, or like a, something negative, you know, something over and against other options to follow. And, but what, he's, what it's saying, what the scriptures are saying, is that actually following Jesus is a command, but it's a command that is good for us better for us, in fact, than ourselves. And that kind of takes us to today. Uh, by the way, there's homework throughout. I know I mentioned it, but I really encourage you to do it. And uh, it doesn't really take that long. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's funny, because if you did the, the homework this past week, Greg talks about um, prayer, some basic things that we move very quickly past prayer and Bible reading and Bible study. And you can just use this for these next few weeks for like devotions in the morning. Or uh, it's like if you did that, you'd finish the first day or the second day, depending on how careful you are. Um, and that's why transformations is important, by the way. Whether we, followed, whether we just started following Jesus, whether we're just curious and we don't, or whether uh, we followed Jesus for a long time, it's very easy to move beyond some of these things. And not that that's necessarily a problem, but often we move beyond it having never understood it, never internalized it, never truly believed it, and never truly living it out. And if you do that, the rest of kind of Christianity or your life with Jesus is just going to be frustrating because you haven't done or you haven't lived or you haven't believed the point. But then we get busy with all kinds of other teaching and conferences and activities, and we've never internalized the, the whole point of it this relationship with God and how it works. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into repentance. Father, um, this topic today, I think is, I'm sure you agree, is incredibly important. But it's also sometimes hard to hear it new and fresh because we think we know what it means already. And so I ask, Lord, that myself included, you would open us up to just a new feeling a new understanding and a new clarity about how we can practice this. And I, I really feel, Father, that, that this topic and just the way that we'll speak about it today is a, is a little bit of a paradigm shift. And that repentance, the whole idea of repentance is central to who we are and is incredibly good news for us. So would you give us ears to hear this morning? In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. In your notes, it says, The Bible describes God creating the universe as a loving Father, creating a place for us to enjoy a beautiful and fulfilling relationship with Him and His family. So, what scholars say about this story in Genesis 1 is that if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, mostly chapter 1, that God is actually creating a temple. This is what the, the image and the, the words that are used are like that of creating a temple. And that the world that we live in is actually, according to Genesis, like a sort of temple. A temple is a place where God dwells and people can come in and connect with him, which is how God meant the world to be. Like a temple, the world would be a place where God and people would unite. It's why he made the world, so that he would have a place to connect with us. That might be a little bit of a shift. Okay, That's why he made it. If you think of 
parents, for example, parents that are well-adjusted, that have a certain amount of money and a place to live, if you think about those kind of parents, what they do when they're going to have a child, normally, is that they, 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 get, they have a room and they paint it and they get it ready and they obsess over it. And what they're doing is they're creating a space to welcome their child in, to connect with their child, to meet with their child. And God is the same way with the world. It's just the reason he made the world was to connect with us. God has no other agenda than that, okay? This is also a point of contention, probably. God has no other intention in the world than that, no other agenda. God has no subtext to what he does, okay? So with people, there's often, there's always a subtext, okay? So I say one thing, or I, I complain to you about one thing, and often what's happening is under that, under what I'm saying, or under, like, my, my complaint or my, my word, is something else going on, right? Something more true, something that I don't want to say, something that I can't admit, that I don't know how to admit. But there's often always multiple levels of conversation, of truth, with God, it's not like that. Who he is is who he is, and what he says is what he says. And so there's no other subtext to God, no ulterior motive. Or he only has one agenda, okay? The God of the Bible has one agenda, to have a relationship of love with us. God does a lot of other things, but as we'll see throughout this, this is his agenda. This is what he's after. We just aren't sure what love looks like sometimes. There's nothing else going on for God. There's nothing else going on in the heart of God from start to finish. His motive is love. He's not like us. In your notes, what went wrong in paradise then? If that's the case, if it's true that God created the world as a loving place to connect with people, it sounds so great. So what went wrong? Adam and Eve, the the characters in the story, choose independence over relationship by rejecting what? By rejecting God's leadership over them. In so doing, the scriptures to, uh, define what happens in Genesis, and then Paul, later in the New Testament, says that what happens is that Adam and Eve and all human beings since become orphans, or like orphans, separated not just from a parent, not just from a family member, what happens when, when human beings become orphans usually, but separated from the source of life, like we talked about last week. Separated from the source of life, the only source. And that, that's the Bible's explanation for why the world is the way it is, is that people are separated or alienated from the source of life. And what could go right when you're separated from the source of life and love? So God's agenda was to have a love relationship with us, but in the story, Adam and Eve choose independence over relationship with God, and in so doing, they become orphans separated from the source of life. It's one thing to be separated from another person. If you've had conflict, it's a whole other thing to be separated from God, whether we've realized that or not, whether we're in touch with that or not. To this day, it's in your notes, humanity continues to trust in self over God. Now, this is really important for what we're talking about today. This is what's happening, is when Adam and Eve choose independence, or they just reject God, they don't listen to him, what they're doing, it's not an open choice. They're not only rejecting God, they're choosing self, okay? They're choosing to trust in themselves, what they think is right and wrong, you can see it in the story, over God. The question is, though, why is that bad? Why is it wrong to trust in ourselves? So what Adam and Eve do, and this is, it, it, because it's the Bible, often we have trouble questioning it, but it would be healthy to question it for a moment. What's wrong with the fact that Adam and Eve don't want to follow God? It's their free choice, right? They want to follow their own leadership. Isn't that healthy? What, the, what we call this in the world often, and what, what the writer of Transformations wants to call it, Greg, is, is self-esteem. Now, I understand when I say that there's a healthy There might be a healthy way of talking about self-esteem, right? Everybody should have a basic, I would assume, level of value for themselves, right? Just a kind of an assumed basic understanding that they're a valuable human being. When I say self-esteem, I'm not talking about that. And I'm talking about how we often mean self-esteem, really, which is not that. Self-esteem means, in this case, trusting in self. Choosing self as a leader, feeling good about yourself, putting yourself first. Doesn't self-esteem, though... Doesn't taking leadership of your life lead to progress, lead to happiness, lead to freedom? This is important to get because this is what we think in the world usually, even if we don't say it, that of course that's good. Of course we want people to take ownership of their lives and lead their lives and be responsible and have self-esteem. It's one of the most common beliefs today that our problem, that our core problem, if you try to get it out of somebody, is, it's not, has nothing to do with God. Our core problem is that we have low self-esteem. 
The problem is that I haven't focused enough on myself yet. Right? There's layers of truth to this, which is why it works, but it's false. I haven't focused enough on myself. I don't yet love myself enough. And if we would all do that, then the problems of the world would cease to exist. But it's not the case, and that's the point of today, to show that. It's not what we need, and it's not what the world needs to change, although it may sound good. Despite, it's in your notes, despite its promises, being self-centered, which is actually what that is, being centered on self destroys relationship. Being centered on self destroys relationship. And remember, the point of the world existing in the first place, what we're saying, is that the world is a temple. The world is a place for a relationship to exist. But self-centeredness destroys that, making us lonely and unfulfilled. It is about us in the end. It would be bad for you to focus on self-esteem. Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way, so listen, listen to the writer of Proverbs, there is a way which seems right to a person, just so women don't get out of it. There is a way that seems right to a person, quote, and then kind of to the side, which is otherwise known as self-esteem, leadership of self. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. And throughout the scriptures, the idea of death, the picture of death, simply, most basically, means alienation from God and other people. This is what death will mean. Physical death, eternal death, is alienation from God and others. So what we're doing in transformations is presenting a different purpose for life, offering a different purpose for life and a different way to get to that purpose, a different way to fulfill it. What we're saying is that our life purpose is about this. It's about love and relationship, and that's all. And what we're going to be looking at today is how to get to that place. How to, if that's the purpose of life, it really is love and relationship, and those are just good ideas. If it really is that, then how do we get there? We have to change to get to that place. And what matters when it comes to changing, the real question is how is someone motivated to change? I can't make you change. I can't, make, I can't really make myself change, really. The, the best motivation for change, the only motivation for change that will work is love and trust. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. In your notes, the Bible calls our self-centered choices, any choice I make that comes from my, the, the leadership of my own life, they call, the Bible calls these choices, which all betray love and trust again, sin. We talked about sin a lot, like in different ways here over the last few series. Uh, and this is going to be a specific way of talking about it. So there's a definition in your notes. Sin is whatever breaks right relationship with God and others. We talk about sin as a condition, which, which I might mention. Uh, but really what I want to zoom in here, which we don't always do, is specific sins. Okay? That sin is a condition that shows itself through certain behaviors, and I want to think about the behaviors today, okay? Sin is whatever breaks right relationship with God and others. So this is different from the way that we think about sin, maybe in the church, but definitely outside if we don't have much experience of maybe good theology or what the Bible says actually about sin. The way that we can think about sin is something like this. We, we picture God as if he's up in the sky, okay? And he's got like a big whiteboard, and he's writing down every action that a human being could do, okay? Just trying to think of anything, anything that a human being could possibly do, any kind of behavior or action. And he writes them all down on a board. It's a, it's a large board. And then he just draws a line through it. And on the left side, he calls all these things good, righteous things. And on the right side, he calls them all sinful and bad. We often have no idea, that's how we think about it, we have no idea why some things are good and why some things are bad, especially that the Bible says are. It just begins to feel arbitrary to us. Like God is just angry, he's on a, he, he loves power, he's decided for whatever reason, and they seem to only fit in certain cultures or certain times, what things are good and what things are bad. And that's, that's how we think that God has... <coughs> That's how we think God has come to, come to the conclusion of what is righteous and what is not. But God, again, count, counter to what we might believe in our heart, God is not a killjoy, and he's not a dictator who makes arbitrary rules. When God calls something a sin, he's telling us that if we do that behavior, it's going to break relationship with him or other people. He's actually, believe it or not, thinking about us. It will break relationship with him or others because sin always breaks a relationship and God's concerned about relationship. 
So it's helpful to know what a sin is so that we can avoid doing it. Okay? It's good to think about. Greg, Dr. Greg Mitchell, who was here last week, by the way, uh, we didn't arbitrarily choose the book either, so we've, we've used transformations before. Greg is the pastor of Every Nation Vancouver, a sister church in Vancouver, who actually helped plant the original church that Jubilee has become today, who's always been very involved, and um, we find it really helpful. So he tells this story about how he kind of he believed that sin breaks relationship, but he tells the story about how it became very clear to him how it does that. So he tells this story. I remember a number of years ago now, so he's the pastor of a church, we had an evening church service, and a guy walks up to him afterward and says, hey, Pastor Greg, I'm from out of town. I just came in, and I've got nowhere to stay. And Greg and his wife are too kind, and so they look at each other, and they say, yeah, sure, you could stay with us. And so he stays with them for about a week, and when a week is up, he, he repays them, he thanks them by stealing their car and stealing Debbie, Greg's wife's purse. And off he goes. And, and Greg says, now call me judgmental, but our relationship was just never the same after that. <laughs> so when God calls something a sin, he says that when you do it, it's going to break relationship. Maybe, maybe theft is clear to you. But it was very clear to Greg that what he teaches was true. That he just... He, he couldn't deal with the fact that he, the guy sinned against him and the relationship was just hard to repair and it would never be like it was before. If the guy asked to stay in his house another week, I'm sure that Greg would at best try to find him another option. So, in your notes, the more we try to self-manage, we'll come back to that idea in a little while, the more we try to self-manage our lives, this is what leadership of our own lives means, okay? Self-manage the more distant we get from God and others. That might be a different way of thinking, okay? It's actually, it's true that sin separates, but it's not, and we do talk about this often, it's not the sin itself that is the biggest problem. Sin comes from a lifestyle of self-management, and when we manage our lives, we will always become distant from God and other people. It's actually good news, because I thought it was just bad stuff I did, and so God's never going to forgive me, but it's actually more complicated than that and better for me, that if I would stop managing my own life, I would draw near to God and near to others. That's getting ahead of myself. Sin is self-management. This is what it sounds like, if we were honest. I don't trust you. I don't trust your love. And so I need to take matters into my own hands. If I'm hungry, I'm going to steal. And if I'm disrespected, I'm going to lie. And if you do something to me, I'm going to seek revenge on my own. Whatever we do, however it manifests itself, it's an attempt to manage our life and to pull things together, to make sense of things outside of God and his love. In your notes, Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2. The Lord's arm is not too weak to save, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. I think that we need to wrestle with that because there's lots of sins in the scriptures that I think we might feel are still arbitrary. Even the thought of my heart that something might be arbitrary is actually better called mistrust. What I'm saying is I don't trust that God has good intentions for me. I don't trust that God is a good leader. I don't trust that he's good or that he's a good leader. He's bad at something for sure. I mistrust him. And so there are, there are always certain things. There are certain sins that, depending on who we are and where we come from and what we like, we're going to wrestle with and we're going to feel might be arbitrary. Greg, Greg tells the story about how even though he was a Christian, he would wrestle with this idea that he couldn't make sense of this, this sin, that, that sex was good and from God, as everyone except, sex is good and from God, but somehow if it's not within a marriage relationship, it's bad. That sounds arbitrary. And so he would wrestle with this idea, and then, uh, and I don't want to get into the stats because it's kind of beside the point at the moment, but he began to read, and Greg's a counselor, okay, does a lot of marriage counseling. He began to study and read stats that said that, that the divorce rate is, is pretty high, by the way, for people inside and outside the church. So I'm not saying whether you're a Christian or not right now, actually. It goes deeper than that. What he saw was that he was counseling people as he was studying that people who chose to cohabitate or live together before they got married 
the, the divorce rate for those people would double. He'd say, what's going on there? And then he saw that if somebody had chosen not to have sex before they were married, that their, assuming they're, they're healthy too, their divorce rate went down to 3%. And then he saw, actually, which was pretty interesting, that even people who had been, in his words, promiscuous before, but who then, before they got married, recommitted to purity and chastity, and then got married, also, theirs went down to 3%. And so he began to wonder, as he thought it was arbitrary, that maybe although it seemed like that, that what if God had his best interest in mind? What if he was trying to save his future marriage? What if he was trying to save him from heartache? What if he was trying to save him from brokenness? And what if although it felt like a killjoy to people, that's all he was doing? Like a good father who understood something that his child didn't yet understand who will still let the child make whatever choice he's going to make and live with the consequences, was trying to warn the child of the consequence that actually had nothing to do with just like controlling things or being a killjoy. I think that's a good one, but there's a bunch of others I think that we wonder, is it really arbitrary? And what we don't do is we just haven't trusted yet that God is trustworthy. In your notes, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is, is referenced here. Just like a child, in fact, I want to read that. Can someone look it up? This is, uh, Matthew seven twenty one. Just like a child who rebels against his parents, we cannot receive the blessings of our father unless we surrender our independence to his leadership. Someone have that? Yep, just that. Yeah, 21. I wrestled with this as I was preparing because I was, I was like, never thought of Matthew seven twenty one like that. What, what he's saying is that in the picture, he says, not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, meaning I believe, I believe, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my father, who follows the father's leadership. And what Greg says is, just like a child who rebels against his parents, we cannot receive the blessings of our father unless we surrender our independence to his leadership. What he's saying is there's a truth of relationship. I don't know if we've ever really put these things together, but in a relationship, the greater the amount of trust that exists, the greater the experience of blessing. Okay? For example, let's say that I'm the father of two children. They're about the same age, and one child is not perfect, but they're pretty well behaved. And more than that, I feel like I can trust them, okay? When they say they're going to do something, generally they do it. When I ask them not to do something, generally they don't do it. When I, when I give them something and ask them to give it back, they give it back. When I say, please be home around 10, they come home around 10. The other child, for reasons, and things have happened in their life, is generally acting out. They don't do anything that I asked them to do. And in fact, a week ago, they stole money from me. Okay? Now the two, the, my two kids come to me again the same night, and one of them, the one that's relatively good, says, hey, is it okay if I go out with my friends? Can I have some money? And I say, sure, yeah, no problem. How much do you need? What time will we be back? And they tell me what they need, and they tell me I'll be back around 10. And I'm like, great, have fun. And then the other one says, hey, can I have money? And I say, no, you can't have money. You just stole $100 from me last week. Why would I give you money again? Uh, can I go out? No, you can't go out. You never return when I tell you to. Now, am I mean? Or is there no trust here anymore? Am I playing favoritism? Or is it just that here I have trust, and here I have no trust? And it's the, it's the consequence of a relationship. The fact that we have a relationship means now there can be this conflict. The child might think I'm mean, but am I? And this is what... Matthew 7, 21 says, but I said to you, Lord, Lord, I said, hey, dad. <laughs> Think about how ridiculous it is. Hey, you're my dad. And he says, but the blessing is the kingdom, by the way. Not everyone comes into my kingdom. Only those who do the will, who, are, who trust me, can do that. God is trying to manage our connection to him. This is also a different way of thinking about it. When God is thinking about, I'm using the word blessing generally. I'm not really just talking about God giving you money or something. I'm talking about this. I'm praying and God's not answering. I'm asking for something and nothing's happening. My life is not going well and it's God's fault. And you know, if God is involved in any way of those things, maybe what he's doing is he's managing your relationship with him. For example, 
when we surrender ourselves to a loving God, it begins to create space for God to love us as a parent, to parent us, and to live. But when we live independently of him, we're on our own. God wants to love us and reach us, but the relationship can't sustain blessing and intimacy if there's no trust. I'll probably talk about this at the end, but often what's happening when God's just not answering our prayers is he's trying to create a space that we will need him, that we will attach to him, because that's what God cares about anyway. He doesn't care about the answer to our prayer. Not like, not like we do. We're, we're, we're anxious and insecure about it. God's pretty certain about what's going to happen and what's going on. He wants us to connect. So in your notes, the pendulum swing. What does our resistance to God look like then? If we're, if we're living in this life of sin, what does that look like? Because it looks different for every person. Typically, according to the notes, we do what's called a pendulum swing. The pendulum swing is a way that we relate to God when we're outside of relationship with him. So everybody's relating to God all the time, by the way, whether believing God or not, uh, whether we feel close to him or not, we're all relating to him. And the way that we do that outside of trust and outside of healthy relationship is by rebelling, but by rebellion and by what we call religion. The pendulum swing is what's going on when we're sinning, the real thing that's going on. Uh, you have sex outside of marriage, it's, it's going to hurt you or it could hurt someone else, but there's something deeper going on anyway. That's what we meant. There's something deeper going on and that's what's happening is you're rebelling at the moment and then you're swinging back to religion. So rebellion, what it does in your notes is it rejects God's offer for relationship. This is one thing that we do. We reject God's offer. In the name of freedom, we mistrust authority and we pride ourselves in following our own path. This is usually what we think of when we think of sin. Now, we don't usually come out and say we're rebellious. Most, most, some people do, but most people aren't saying, yeah, that's me. I'm super rebellious. I just do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> what we usually say is that we love freedom. I love to be free. In the name of freedom, we begin to do whatever we want. And our freedom is really a disguise, though, for mistrust. There's a subtext, like I talked about, to freedom. And the subtext, the real thing, is mistrust. I don't trust you, and I think you're probably going to control me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide behind a cloak of freedom, and I'm going to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. Because at the end of the day, the only person I can trust is me. That's rebellion. That's pretty, pretty right to me. It's not always so clear, but I think we live in that place all the time. Religion, on the other hand, builds our relationship with God on rules and performance. And if you think that sounds better, that's why religion works. Religion is an arm's length relationship with God. Okay, it's keeping God a bit distant. And it says, I'm going to do everything you want me to. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do everything you want me to, to make you happy. Even when it's killing me. Because in religion, what I'm doing is I'm trying hard, I'm falling in line, and I'm trying to follow all the rules that in fact still feel arbitrary to me. Okay? It, there, there's parts of us in our human nature that wonders if that's so bad. It, it sure is better than just kind of rebelling and hurting people, right? In the name of responsibility, this is a key word here, we choose the safety of control. The subtext to religion is control over trusting in God's love and power. Religious people don't like to admit they're religious, maybe even less so than rebellious people like to admit they're rebellious. So what religious people say is that they're responsible. If you like being responsible and if you like feeling in control, then you love religion. It's probably the place that you go. What religion is, is it's obsessed with rules. Not just religious rules, but rules in general. This, uh, by the, this applies to us whether we call ourselves Christians or not right now. It is true. The Christian story is true of human beings, not for people who go to church. So it's, it's, I'm either religious or I'm rebellious anywhere, no matter who I am or where I come from. But religion is just another form of mistrust, just like rebellion. I can't trust you to just love me anyway, right? I can't trust that you really will love me and have my best interest in mind so instead, what I need is I need an agreement. I need a contract. And then I'll begin to feel safe and secure within the contract. And what does that do is it kills relationship too. Relationships don't work well on contracts, right? It's like a prenup. That's the word I was looking for. 
Repentance in your notes. How then do we exit the pendulum swing? Okay, that's the background of this last part. How do we exit? When we rebel, what's happening in rebellion, okay, when that's happening to somebody, when we're doing that, what's happening is that we feel deep down inside unwilling or unable to obey God and live a righteous life. We, we're, we feel that we're just unwilling to do that or we actually just feel unable to do that. And so we think our only option is to rebel. We feel the rules are too hard or we just don't like them. And so we just decide it's just better to do what I want and when I want. My life is just better like that. That, by the way, is self-management. The leadership of my own life is so hard to get out of that. I really do think I know best. I mean that. But after you live that way for a while, you begin to feel this thing called guilt. That's the problem with rebellion. It does work for a while. But after a while, you'll begin to feel guilt, and you'll begin to feel and realize whether either other people will tell you or you'll figure it out, that you're selfish. What you're experiencing is that it is breaking apart relationship. You feel alienated from God. Other people, at least, will feel alienated from you. And so what we're doing when we're rebelling is that we begin to feel bad about it. This is what usually happens. We begin to feel bad, and so the answer to our rebellion is to swing over to religion. So what we do is we say, okay, enough. This time, I'm going to try super hard. I'm going I'm to do everything that I think I'm supposed to do to clean my life up, okay? To, to fix what I broke with God and other people. It, it kind of looks good for a second, but I'm going to try really hard to do that. So if you're in a church setting, it's like, I'm going to go to the church every time I have to be there. I'm going to read the Bible every day. I'm going to talk about Jesus with people, even if they don't want to know about Jesus. I'm going to do anything that I think it means to be a Christian or to be a good person, also relevant outside of the church, whatever that means. So then what we do is we try super hard for a while. And what will happen after a while, and it depends on how long, depending on who you are, you begin to get frustrated. You begin to feel like, this is killing me. It's burdensome to me. It's too much. I remember why I rebelled in the first place. So you do. You go back to whatever your brand of rebellion is. You go back and you feel, you do, you feel a sense of relief. Now you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it again. And whatever that is. And you begin to go, you, you, you get to go to a place, not a church or whatever, you get to go to a place or find people that you feel will not judge you. And everything feels great again. And then after a while again, the time depends on you. You begin to feel guilty, selfish, and alienated from God and from other people. And so you swing back to religion. You try hard again. And we spend most of our lives swinging between religion and rebellion. And I would say, even like church, discipleship is just a swinging. Discipleship is just religion, you know? Do bad things, and then, I, I don't mean it actually is, but that's how we see it, that's how we receive it. And then we swing back over and do all the activities and do all the stuff until we can't take it anymore. And we go back over and rebel. How did, I don't know how it works for you, but I want you to just think about what does that look like for you? It happens in the world, too, outside of church. Uh, if I, if I want to go on a diet, I've been rebelling for a while, okay? And then I just, not exactly me, but, and I'm like, forget it. I'm tired of eating whatever I want and feeling terrible, so I'm going to come over here and have a super strict diet, and I'm going to do that until I can't handle it anymore, and then I'm going to go off and I'm going to do whatever I want, or I have a budget. And I'm like, I'm finally going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a budget and I'm going to follow it. All right? And then I can't take, like, pinching pennies anymore, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to do something irresponsible. Buy something irresponsible. I'm going to Costco. And I'm going to, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just going to buy something huge, okay? Something that I can't carry myself. And then I'm going to put on my credit card, MasterCard, because Costco doesn't take anything else. And then, and then I'm going to leave. And I'm going to go home, and like a day later, I'm going to enjoy it. And then a day later, I'm like, why did I do that? But then I, but I, then I bought it. I bought it as is at IKEA, and they won't take it back. And I say, you know what? So my reaction to that is that ah, I'm going to budget again. I'm going to be super strict because now I got to pay off the credit card too that I need that money for. And I'm going to do that for a while, and then I'm going to rebel again. I'm going to act out. We don't escape religion and rebellion when we come to church either. I want, this is not that big of a deal, I think, for some of us, but we want to fit in, and a church is a place to fit in, like any other place. 
And so fitting in it is religion. So I'm going to do whatever these people do. I'm going to talk like they talk. I'm going to do their thing. If they raise their hands, I'm going to raise my hands. You know, I don't know what that means. I'm going to read the Bible because that's what they do. I'm going to go to their group because that's what they do. I'm going to go to their microchurch because that's what they said to do. The only way to get relief for us after we do that is going to be to sin. It's still your fault. But the reason that you're doing it is because you're burdened by religion, or you were. So listen to this. What creates our rebellion is our religion. What causes us to rebel is the religion that we've experienced, or that we've chosen. If we can get free from religion, we wouldn't have to act out or rebel nearly as much as we do. So the pendulum swings between religion and rebellion, between lawlessness and legalism, for other words, or for words that aren't biblical necessarily, between control and withdrawal. I overact or I underact. I try really hard or I don't try at all. Jesus, in his ministry, is mostly talking to two groups of people, right? Sinners, a collection of random sinners, and Pharisees, rebellious people and religious people. And we all find ourselves not in one group, but swinging between one group. And for you, it might be five years in one group, right? It doesn't, the pendulum can move pretty slowly. But we all move between these two groups. So back to the notes. How do we exit the pendulum swing? Mark 1, 15. We repent and we believe. Repentance is the way that we get back home. This is how we get to the Father. What Mark says is it's through repentance and faith. I'm talking about repentance, and next week we'll talk about faith. Repentance, in your notes, is a 180-degree change of mind. It is a heart decision to turn from self and to trust and follow Jesus. Repentance is not a change of behavior, and this is a hard thing to internalize, okay? When I say internalize, I mean truly understand it. It's not a change of behavior. It's a change of heart and mind, biblically, that leads to a change of behavior. But if you, if you think it's a change of behavior, you're just going to fall back into religion very quickly. It's a turn from thinking one way to now thinking a new way. Repentance is a two-step process. This is important. We turn, you know, if I'm repenting of, of my addiction to music stands, I need to turn from music stands, and then I need to turn to something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a swing. I'm swinging. That's true in any kind of in any kind of thing that we wrestle with that we're trying to get away from. You have to replace it with something. I think even in the New Testament, when um, the verse is escaping me right now, but Paul gives Philemon, no, Onesimus, the slave, uh, who's stealing things. He gives him. He says, instead of stealing things. Why don't you do something worthwhile? This is a very bad paraphrase. Do something worthwhile with your hands. Do you turn from something else? You need to turn to something, or something else will just fill the void anyway. The music stands were filling my void in the first place. So you can feel comfortable with whatever your issue is. Mine's that ridiculous. Repentance is this two-step process, turning one from one thing into another. So first we turn from our sin and our selfishness. How? In your notes, by confessing and forsaking. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sins, his transgressions, will not prosper. He won't do well. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The first step to change is transparency. It gets rid of religion and rebellion like nothing else. What transparency means is it's being honest about what's really going on. What we often do, because honesty is hard, is we hide it, and then we try to correct it, or we try to do good things that will kind of overshadow the bad thing that we did to somebody or that we've done in general, which is just going from rebelling to religion, fixing it on our own. But there's nothing more healing than being known and accepted in the place of being radically honest with someone. There's nothing more healing than being completely honest and having someone accept you anyway. That's the thing that you need, not hiding it. Hiding it, there's no way to prosper. If you don't confess with honesty and vulnerability, you'll never find intimacy with God because, with God especially, there will always be something, a wall, that stands between you and God if you can't be honest, and it's called self-protection. And God can't get beyond it. He wants to, 
God exists for love and relationship with us. We've put the blame on him, but he exists for love and relationship. And the first step to having a relationship with him is to be honest and vulnerable with him. It's easy to excuse and blame our sin. This is big. This quote, Ashley Knoll gave it. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You get that? What my heart loves, my will is going to choose it. And then afterward, when you have a problem with it, my, my mind is going to justify why I did it. Why I did it. Think about that. That's how it works. That's, that's how sin becomes like a, like a handcuff. I was pointing to my leg. What's that word? A shackle? That's good. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how, it, that's how sin keeps us in its grips. Is it's, number one, it's what my heart wants. We'll talk about this in a second, which we don't often like to admit. And then my will chooses it, and then my mind's going to justify again and again. And the way that we do that is often just by blaming it on other people. I want to be careful because it's true that not everything is our fault, which I'll say in a minute. But we will find all kinds of reasons why I am the way I am. It's how I grew up. It's what someone did to me. This is legitimate. We talk about stuff like that. But if you only do that and you don't accept responsibility for something, you can't change. It's not that God arbitrarily wants you to accept responsibility. It's that he wants you to change. To confess in your notes is to admit we sin and why it's evil. It's pretty straightforward. All life's problems are not our fault. This is important to hear for some of us. It's not our fault, but when we take responsibility for the parts that are then God can forgive us and heal us. It's about taking responsibility for the things that are our fault. That's all I'm talking about with repentance. The things that are our fault, that's what we take responsibility for. And when we do that, it creates the space for God to heal us, come to us, and forgive us. Society's morals in your notes are often about pleasure versus pain. What should you do? Things that feel good. And what should you not do? things that don't feel good and what should you do to other people although this is somewhat true <laughs> things that feel good and what should you not do to other people things that don't feel good to them that's not this, the Bible's explanation of motive the motive that we should have according to the scriptures is love to forsake in your notes is to break off our friendship with our sin and our lies so what's the main reason why we sin the main reason why it's very complicated it's because we like it we, we like to do it, so that's why we do it. And I do what I do because I like to do that. And you do what you do because you like to do that. We need to be real about that. You need to be real about the benefits of sin. If you want to be free of something, you have to wrestle with why you do it. Sin has its benefits, lots of them. If I steal a million dollars and I don't get caught, I have found a benefit, a good one. It was wrong, right or wrong, it has a benefit. Pleasure versus pain. I gambled and I got pleasure, so... It has its benefits, and we need to be honest about that. You're caught, we're caught in something. It's not that part of us don't want to be, but part of us does, and we need to admit that. We do things because we choose to, and when we sin, it's because what's happening is we think what we're doing or what we've chosen is better than what God offers us. That's why it's about mistrust. It's a statement of mistrust. I know what's best for me. So if sin is so good, why should someone bother repenting? We repent, in your notes, as we realize that the one thing sin can never give us is a healthy relationship with God and other people. It's the only motivation that turns us away from sin. Sin can do a lot of things for us, but it can never do one thing, though. It can never draw you close to God or another person. The only thing that can motivate us to overcome sin is when we begin to value love and relationship over personal pleasure. We begin to value it, desire it, want it. It's the only thing that can motivate us to change. In your notes, sin gives us all sorts of benefits, but to forsake means to renounce those selfish benefits for the sake of love. After this, we turn to love away from sin and turn to love and relationship with God and other people. The Bible describes a Christian as, uh, becoming a Christian as adoption, okay? Being adopted as a child by God. Repentance, then, is choosing the vulnerability of connection over the safety of independence. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to say it again. Repentance, what does it mean? It's choosing the vulnerability of connection with God. 
or someone else over the safety of remaining independent. Greg, I'll tell really quickly, tells a story about, uh, he, they foster kids, he and his wife, but they have a friend that that's fo- has fostered lots and lots and lots of kids. And he was talking to her about how she does it and getting advice, and she would tell these stories about that she's only trying to do one thing when she's fostering a kid, is that she knows that the kind of kids that she would foster obviously have gone through difficult things. They, they don't find it easy to trust in most cases, which is natural. But she knows that unless they will trust her, she won't get anywhere with them. She can't. If they obey her, it will only be out of a, a source of obligation, and even with that, they usually won't. And so I won't go into the whole story, but she tells about how she tries to build one thing with them. And in the parenting world, they call it attachment, but connection, trust. And so she says, that's all I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to get them to attach to me because when they do, when they begin to trust me and need me, then I already won. They have problems. It will take a long time to work through them, but I know that I will be the person that can be there for them. They will trust me. They will listen to me. Our Father, God, is the same way. He wants to create space for us to attach to Him. We're all separated from Him as our Father. He's adopting us back, but in adoption, there's a process where we need to begin to trust Him again and attach. I understand that might be a weird thought if we don't even believe in God or if we thought it was about something else, but it's just about this. This is how transformation, when we talk about it, works. Transformation works when we begin to attach and trust God again and then begin to repent. Then we can repent. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11 contrasts two responses to guilt, okay? I feel guilt one way. It can lead to blame on other people, and then I feel alienated from them and from God. The other feeling of guilt can lead me to repentance, to owning what's mine, and to reconciliation. True repentance is active. It's not passive. It's doing something. It's passionate. It's not obligated or dutiful. It's remorseful. It's not blaming on other people. It's vulnerable. It's not guarded. It costs me something. I don't calculate it beforehand. Essentially, it's about saying life is about we. It's about me and you, God. It's about you guys and me. It's not about me. It's coming to terms with that. Repentance is saying this. So you catch these parts at the end here. It's saying, I long to be joined to you, God. That's it. I long to be joined to you. And the beautiful thing about God is that although we see him as heavy-handed, he really doesn't require that much from us. I mean, essentially, what he's saying is, he wants us to repent and believe. And repentance is turning away from other things and being able to say, I just want to be with you. I'll I'll give up everything to just be with you. And he's promising everything. all of himself. It's not even like it's a a great cost. What happens over time is we begin to just trust him. That's repentance. I want to be joined to you. Is over time then we change. As God peels away layers that we thought we were cool, we were fine, we didn't have other things, he begins to peel it away. And what he's doing is he's getting us down to our flesh, the core of who we are, which is the part of us, our heart, that God connects with. We think that we are now vulnerable. We're probably barely And then uh, over time, he will remove the rest of the self-protection. And we will find greater and greater intimacy. So, in closing, what if... Let me just ask a question. This is not in your notes, but then we'll go to the conclusion in your notes. What if the reason why we struggle to connect with God and other people... What if the reason why we still struggle with sin, why it's still attractive, is because we've never repented... What if it's just that? What if our problem, my problem, is not that I'm not trying hard enough, not that I haven't read enough of the Bible yet, not that I haven't had enough inner healing yet or counseling appointments yet. What if it's that I just don't want to be different? I know that's a hard uh, correction, but what if it did? What if? (laughs) What if it's the case? What if the real problem is that I'm just not repentant? When we think about repentance, like it's just saying sorry, that's confusing. When we think about it as a 180 degree change of mind and heart to turn back to God and away from self, it's possible I haven't done that. I have not, to not repent means that I have not settled in my heart yet a desire to be intimate with the Father over the pleasure and safety of being independent. What if it's the real issue that's going on? And what if, if I were to surrender and let myself receive God 
first, that the pleasure of sin would begin to feel like the lie that it is. It would begin to feel like a terrible alternative to the life that I'm being given. What if the problem is not my self-effort, actually? It's not that I haven't tried hard enough. What if it's that we haven't chosen to draw near to God yet in our heart? We have not settled on that. In your notes, when we give our hearts to Jesus in repentance, that connection deeply transforms us. That's the secret. It doesn't seem like much of a secret, I guess, but the way that like, we work for holistic transformation, how do you do that? It only happens when we connect to God. The way that we connect to God is through repenting and believing. It makes us, it makes trust begin to feel safe and it begins to make self-sacrifice feel like a joy. Outside of Jesus, we're imprisoned in your notes in a life that we made by our own sin and rebellion. That's a hard thing to wrestle with. My life is my life. The room, that room, the room that I made, that I kind of made my own bed and now I'm going to sleep in it, that kind of thing, the room that I set up for myself in my life stands condemned. I shouldn't waste my time on it anymore. It's marked for demolition, which is what the scriptures call hell, alienation, to be done away with. Jesus does not come to clean our prison cell, change the decor, or even put in new furnishings. He calls us to walk out of a self-centered life and to shut the door behind us and embrace a new life that God has designed for us. That's transformation. We respond to that call. All we're called to do is to repent. Repentance is not about feeling ashamed, although you might feel that, you might feel guilty, or even promising to try harder. It's about surrendering control for the sake of being restored. Our problems are so complex, so in his kindness, God gives us a practical, realistic place to start. Repentance. As we choose trust in relationship, we experience life according to his love, his will, and his ability. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Righteousness, by the way, before you think that it then means that you have to try hard to do everything again, means right relationship. Your behavior will change, but righteousness means that you have a right relationship with God and others. Repentance is choosing God to be the source of your life. If you are here last week, we talked about God as the source. Repentance is the choice to make him your source instead of yourself Change doesn't start with the behavior. That's enticing. It doesn't start with the behavior. It starts with repentance, choosing the vulnerability of attachment and connection with God over the pleasure of independence. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.